Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. Genesis, chapter 9. We're going to begin our message in verse 18. We've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and uh, when we last saw Noah, he was literally standing amidst rainbows and promises of God. The triumphant flood had demonstrated that God takes sin seriously and he will judge all sin. The world was in totality cleansed. The world had a fresh start. Isn't that something we all need? We, we need at times fresh starts with our relationships and we wonder how they got to where they are, wishing we could somehow start over and, and heal the damage that we've done to one another of habits and addictions, the desire if we could have start freshly and get out of what controls us of the failures and sins that come into our mind, wishing that all of it could be washed away and forgotten. As we pick up the story of humanity after the flood in this passage, we, we get to see what the world does when the entire world actually does get from God a fresh start. Genesis 9:18. The sons of Noah who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May the, Lord may the God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years and all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Nothing uncomfortable there. Throughout the pastor's conference this past week, if I wanted any amount of sympathy, I would just mention what passage I was preaching this week. Because of the conference, I completely forgot to send out 
the sermon discussion guide to small group leaders. Uh, and so you're on your own for developing discussion on this passage. Perhaps many of our groups in great piety will have a strong focus on prayer requests later today. It's weird. It makes us uncomfortable. The Bible is very honest. Uh, there is a lot of ugliness in the Bible because the Bible is the most accurate reflection of this world and our condition and our need that you can find. For God to work in us, for us to see him and know him, we must see ourselves and the world with clarity. And so let's ask for grace in this. Our Heavenly Father, help us with this passage, which no one would come across and think, let's preach this, let's spend time here. But you have given it to us, and so it is your good purpose for us to see this, to know and understand. So do that for us. May our hearts and minds be clear. Equip us with your goodness and wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It didn't take long to ruin that new beginning. So what actually happened? Uh, there are a couple options of how uh, biblical scholars over the years and God's people have understood the passage. The one is that the phrase to uncover nakedness is a euphemism for sexual sin. And there's grounds for that because in Leviticus 18, it, that's precisely the, the phrase that's used to describe all sorts of evil and perverse sexual sin that God warns his people to keep away from. However, in, in the passage, it, it speaks of Noah being uncovered. It doesn't speak of Ham uncovering his nakedness, which is the way it's used to describe sexual behavior. And, and also, we're told that Ham then went out and told his brothers. So that Ham may have committed an indecent act against his father, or sometimes it could refer to the, the wife of the man uncovered is the one where indecency is brought to them. But it, it doesn't seem likely that Ham would go out immediately and tell his brothers about that. And so the, the other prominent option, I think, the, the one that is the most natural reading of the passage is that Ham simply was seeking to shame his father. To have done that, that means there was untold to us tensions and attitudes that when opportunity came, 
Ham meant to, before his brothers, degrade his father. And when people do that, it's to exalt themselves. Whatever happened, the point really is the same. The purpose of the passage is unchanged by whatever exactly was the sin. We know it is sin, and this is clear. Sin keeps churning away within humanity. Once again, the world's family is broached. Division has come once again, as we saw in the first chapters of Genesis. Sinful conflict has entered the human family, and it just keeps spreading. That fresh start didn't go very far. It didn't last very long. So here is the main point of the message today. Only Christ can give us a fresh start. Only Christ can give us a new, a fresh start. We have to ask, how could those who lived through the flood, who saw the devastation, who heard the destruction, those who live through that incredible judgment of God against sin, how could they so fast turn to sin? Haven't you had that in your heart and mind against other people's sins? How can they do that? And then you look at the consequences of particular sins that you see are pouring on the lives of people who pursue that sin. We think, don't they learn? Why don't they change? Well, the reason is simply the same reasons why you keep sinning and why you have patterns of attitudes and actions that have come into your heart and life over and over again may not be this dramatic, but it's all just as present before the eyes of the Lord. There are no clean slates or fresh starts without Christ because none of us are a blank slate. None of us are innocent. Inside, none of us truly are clean. This story, this account of Noah after the flood is told in such a way that it evokes thoughts of that first sin in the garden with Eve and Adam. The sin that started it all in Genesis 3. Eve was in a garden. Noah was in his vineyard that he planted. Eve took of the tree, Noah drank of the vine. Eve saw the tree, Ham saw his father. Eve involved Adam, Ham tried to involve his brothers. Adam and Eve realized they were in nakedness, Noah awoke in nakedness. Adam and Eve made clothes to cover themselves, Ham's brothers covered their father. 
Adam and Eve's sin brought a curse to the world. Ham's sin brought a curse to his line. We are meant to, to read this and go, wait, wait, I think, I think we've seen this before. We're meant to see once sin entered the human soul, it wormed its way in and all humanity, we may have a diversity of how we sin, but the presence of it, the root of it, the purpose of it, the motivations, it, it plagues all of us. And no matter how wondrous we are given a, a fresh start, a foundation by God on our own. We just keep ending up in the same place. Here's the situation. Sin made its way into human nature and we cannot cleanse it out. We scrub as hard as we want. We simply cannot get the stain out. The Bible speaks of this at length, very clearly, in depth. The book of Romans, which is the fullest presentation of the situation of our need and God's response to it. In Romans chapter 3, it tells us, no one in all humanity is without the stain and corruption of sin. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. And then in chapter 7 of Romans, it, it describes even when we try really hard to push away sin and to live a different way, sin comes in and sin actually turns us against ourselves. Chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. The apostle Paul writes, for I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. How many times have you been there? Right with the Apostle Paul. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. And then in chapter 6, it, it speaks of the hold that sin has upon us. And the Bible doesn't exaggerate when it says sin enslaves us. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The story of the Bible is that regardless of God's creation goodness to us, humanity fails. We, we see that repeated time after time in person after person. We see throughout the scripture, God in his kindness to his people, God keeps raising up 
prophets and judges and kings. He raises up leaders and defenders. And we see these people of God who, who are used by God in, in good ways, in wonderful ways. We see threads of faith and of sacrifice that we can admire. And yet, in each one, we still get to the place where they too fail. We, we see it here before us with Noah and his family who escaped the waters of judgment and it didn't take long. We will see with Abraham who was the father of all those who have faith in God who really betrayed his wife more than once lying to escape danger himself and putting her in danger. We see it in Gideon and Samson who in power delivered the nation from their enemies and both of them failure that affected the nation. We see it in the prophet Samuel whose own sons whom he placed in positions of power took bribes. We see it in the mighty King David and wise King Solomon. And in each of them, we see great sin. We are meant to see and recognize Jesus Christ is singular in his ability to save and to truly bring a fresh start to us. There, there is no person, there is no pathway, there is no wisdom, uh, there is no entity, there is no plan. There is nothing that will work aside from the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ did live holy, righteous, un touched by sin, he alone. Christ could and did pay the penalty of sin by the shedding of his own precious blood. Jesus alone was in his own power raised from the dead and he does rule to empower his people to conquer sin. Only Jesus can give us truly a clean slate. A righteous heart. A soul that's whole. Only Jesus can do that. He gives us an eternally fresh start, a completely righteous heart. There are not various options for this. There are not various options of, of how we come to God, how we get a fresh start in life. There's only two directions life can go. With God against him. There's no neutral ground. Neutrality is to not go with God, which the Bible says, which God says is to be against me. Because he is the Lord creator God 
to whom we owe everything. So to anything less than giving ourselves to him is a denial of him. Our text in the entire book of Genesis makes this point of these two directions through the the theme of blessing and curse. We've already seen it even in the creation account. Chapters 1 to 3, we see blessing and curse. And that theme is going to be brought in repeatedly throughout Genesis. And it is meant to show us that there are indeed just two pathways, two directions, with God against him. That is it. And only God can define what it means to be with him. It's like some man wanting to say he's with his wife defining on his own terms when he's somewhere else, with someone else, as though, yeah, I'm still with her. Ask the wife what she thinks. It's what God, how God understands. Noah's response to him is more than anger. It's about those two directions. With God, against God, blessing, curse. Look closely at the language of Noah's blessing and curse. Pay attention. Look again, verses 24 to 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. First, the curse is not on Ham. Is it cursed be Canaan, who is the son of Ham? And we should notice that the way This passage introduces Ham, who is the father of Canaan. But look in verse 18. Ham was the father of Canaan, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan. So we're we're being, it's emphasized to us. It's being telegraphed to us of what Ham represents. He is the father of. The line that follows him is the line of Canaan. The curse is on the line of Ham. The blessing is not on Shem. The blessing is on Shem's God. Blessed be the God of Shem. Meaning blessing is in those who follow, who trust in God. There is no blessing for Shem without God. There's nothing for him to be offered. But if he is connected to God who is blessed. And that Japheth is blessed as he dwells with his brother in the line of those who are righteous. So what we're being shown here is what was shown to us in chapters 4 and 5. It's about lines of righteousness and unrighteousness, just as 
we saw with the lines of Cain and Seth and what they represented in the, the two paths of will we be with God or against him? And now after the flood, it's presenting the same theme again, the line of those who are righteous and the line of those who are not. Genesis is Genesis in all sorts of ways that are large and small, just keeps repeating and bringing in new details and, and more people, but it just keeps repeating itself. It keeps emphasizing that central, necessary picture, the wondrousness of God, the inability and failure of man, and God's promise to provide but it's only through what he does. It's not how we make our way to him. The table of nations in chapter 10, which is also part of the text for this message, but in graciousness, I'm not going to read all of chapter 10. Yeah, this chapter which is genealogy, is referred to as the table of nations. And it's meant to, to take what we see at the end of chapter 9, this idea of the lines of blessing and curse of righteousness and unrighteousness, and, and draw that out so we see how it progressed. Chapter 10 doesn't simply list descendants of these sons of Noah, it is describing the spread of the earth's peoples. Verses 2 to 5, the line of Japheth, are the peoples that moved west into the Mediterranean world and up into Europe. Verse 5 of chapter 10. From these, the coastland peoples spread into their lands, each with their own language by their clans and their nations. Verses 8 to 20, the line of Ham, are the peoples of, uh, if you remember history and geography classes, school, the Fertile Crescent area of the Middle East, and then into Africa. Verse 6, it tells us the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then we have uh, in the following verses, 8 to 14, we have then descendants who are also the names of nations. And the one that is emphasized the most is Nimrod. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then it goes on, verse 11, to say he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, which was the capital of the beginning of Assyria. And then in verse 13, it tells us that Egypt was his son. And then verse 14, it speaks of his descendants from whom the Philistines came. So we have in the line of Ham, if you're familiar with your Old Testament and you've read it and heard it preach, you see all of the nations that opposed and occupied Israel over the years. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, 
the Egyptians, the Philistines. We're given their names here, and we'll be hearing a lot about all of them for the rest of the Old Testament. And then Canaan's descendants, verses 15 to 20, are those who will be occupying the land that God gave Israel that they will have to displace as they are called to enter the land after Moses. The, the name, some of you remember right away, some if you read your Old Testament, again, you'll, you'll see these names showing up. The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites. It speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. How about this for showing, uh, I wonder if the Bible's still relevant. Verse 19, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Greer as far as Gaza. As they say, there's nothing new under the sun. Including the answer to all of our need. How is this information in the table of nations helpful to us? Beyond those who know the Old Testament, oh, that's interesting, yeah, I, I can, this is where these names come up. It, 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 it's not just something to fascinate history geeks or the even geekier people who like geography. The table of nations, first it, it shows us that God is sovereign over all peoples, all places, all time. The more specific application is to show us the hope of all peoples is not our leaders, it's Christ. For remember where we're coming from, the judgment of God upon the whole world, his protection of the family of Noah, his giving them a fresh and new start in the world and that just the wheels come off right away and, and look at their descendants coming after them. What is our hope? What is our help? The line, those of righteousness, meaning the people of God, it will be those whom God graciously raises up and sustains by his hand. It will not even be those who by their wisdom and their commitment will make themselves followers, will make themselves righteous. For we will see over and over again, that person doesn't exist. It will be those whom God in Nothing but his grace and mercy plucks out of their mess and destruction and by the blood of his son washes them and makes them clean and righteous. It is not but God's 
grace to men. It is the only hope we have. We may think we're determining our own way, but all that we're doing all the running around and decision-making and, and nations thinking they're making something, all of it is just the same. The ceaseless running to and fro, speaking endlessly, and everyone ending up in the same place. We have a mess, and we don't know what to do. We can't find our way out. There's no empire that can do it. There is no leader who can do it. There is no United Nations that can do it. There is no candidate who can do it. No election results that can do it. There is only the one whom God has sent. The one he promised immediately after the sin of the garden. He would send one coming from the line of Eve who would destroy the enemy and the corruption and bondage of sin. And that one is Jesus. And though we see the language of the lines of righteousness and unrighteousness, and, and God will choose Abraham, and we'll see how then he chooses from his sons, and then from his sons, and, and God will, will choose a people, and even into the New Testament, we see this language and God's grace in it, but here is what we also must know, our dependence of God to save us, but to also see that God has not abandoned any nation or peoples. For at the very end, at the very end, the, the last picture, we are told of the uncounted masses of people giving praise to God from every language, tongue, and tribe. We must know it is only by the grace of God coming to us, but God hasn't abandoned any peoples, and he has raised up his son, saved us, and as we saw last week, he has sent all whom he has saved to be his instruments of the gospel of this Jesus. We will see this in the book of Acts. In the early chapters of Acts, as the risen Christ has sent his followers begin declaring the gospel, we see the line of Shem was included when Paul was saved. We see the line of Japheth was included when Cornelius and his household was saved. We see the line of Ham was included when the Ethiopian court official was saved. For God will have his people from every place. And he will show the magnificence of his grace and power by reaching and sustaining in the most remote places those whom he will save. So our hope not only is for ourselves, our hope is for those we 
pray for and speak to and give the word of God to, we are always hopeful because we see God's heart. We're coming to the end. Does your heart include all? How about we walk on some real boggy ground for a moment with the truth of God before us? I'm not making any political statement of positions on policy. Uh, we need to see above and beyond that. The complexity is of immigration and people. I would never tell you what's right about it because it's too complicated for me to understand. What should our government do? But there's a lot of voices and opinions. What do we do? Who should we allow? What should we stop? And governments have the right to make policies and address. Uh, here is the position of those who love God. Each person is someone who needs Christ. And if they are here, we have opportunity to reach them for Christ. And hold your opinions. You can have them. And you can vote for people with your views of what is wise and good. But in our concerns or fears or thoughts, may, may we not miss our place in all of it is to lift up Jesus so that all may see. And that is so important and should so possess our hearts that we have little time for anything else. By God's grace, by the sheer kindness of God, our church is a part of this. But we want to keep growing in it. There are many things we should say, that's enough. That house is big enough. That car's nice enough. I ate enough pie. Yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to the gospel going out, it's never enough. Just in this year, members of this church were in Guatemala, the mountains, people of the Mayans. We had people from our church who were just in the Oasis Church reaching to people from Iranian backgrounds. People from this church were with the bounds in inner city Philadelphia. And not only were you involved in those places, in every one of those mission trips and teams, we had people from other churches with us. And isn't that wondrous? There are nations that you pray for, that we have partners laboring in, in different parts of the world. 
and in our family of churches, this was nothing that Sovereign Grace planned to do, set out to do. But in the last five to seven years, the number of pastors from nations all over the world that just keep contact and approaching Sovereign Grace is, has become overwhelming. It is churches that come from a, a strong theology but recognize they want to be where the Holy Spirit is emphasized and it's not sterile. It's those who come from backgrounds where theology was loose and a lot of emotions and they want real truth to be embedded in with it. However they're coming, Sovereign Grace churches are now involved in 46 nations of the world on six continents. In three years, there will be more Sovereign Grace churches outside of the United States than in. In 10 years, it could be triple the amount of churches or more outside of the country than in. I, I hope we can do something maybe in the next couple weeks to lay out some of this that you can see it and be encouraged. We're involved in the Sovereign Grace Europe, where we'll have, we already were in June and then in March, from a number of countries in Europe, pastors coming together, and we will be there. And how do we build up church planning, train leaders? How do we encourage you? This past week, I was part of the, the oral exams, which uh, Pastor McDonald Shonda from Zambia passed wonderfully and will be ordained as a Sovereign Grace elder. And his church has a pastor's college, an orphanage with a couple hundred children, and a school as well as their congregation. And we're part of that. We're connected to that. In our region, just our region, we have the, the pastors are involved different places, and we are bound to these churches. We pray for them week by week. We have relationships. We know them. We are strengthening each other for this. One story. In Pakistan, one of the hardest places to go in with the gospel, there are some sovereign grace churches who have been working with Christians. Anytime a picture is shown of any of those Christians, their face has to be blacked out. They have been going over, working with these Christians, which has connected them, and I don't know all the details, but some believers, who, they are working in what they call the brick pits in Pakistan. They say it's not much more than slave labor. And here in the danger and opposition, churches' gatherings had to be very small to stay hidden and to keep from persecution and many of these churches they're they're asking to be a part of sovereign grace they're saying we want to be trained we want to come in we want to partner with you and when they ask how many churches is this is it 400 400 gatherings of people rescued out of despair and darkness and hopelessness and we get to have some touch and part of that that we pray will grow. That both far and near. If you've been to our 
Easter egg hunt, the community picnic, the diversity that we see for the nations are coming into our township here. They come and live here. And your pastors, we pray and talk, how do we, how do we try to bridge those gaps? How do we reach those here? And if you have a heart for it, would you not pray as well? Lord, we need grace to bridge these, these distances that are so hard humanly to bridge. The gospel can and we want to. May God mercifully allow us to be celebrating even more in the days soon to come of what we see, of the gospel changing people of every place and our minds go back to what we read in scripture and what God has said. Do you need help making life clean? Getting a reset of your uncontrollable life. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus came for. This is what Jesus does well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for our hearts to be fully given to you who are worthy to be reminded that all parts of our life that are outside of you is just waste and hopelessness and foolishness. May we be freshly persuaded of your worthiness for our wholehearted devotion to you. We pray for those here who have never committed to you. May they see their need and that there is hope only in Christ. And Father, by your grace, we ask that we may be a part of that here and far. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.